daughter, Allison, uh, she was with us for a season, and God did an amazing work to the point where uh, she said, I need to go. I need to go somewhere. So she's on the equator in the Amazon, Brazil area, and she's been laying her life down and doing some amazing things uh, you know, with a ministry there. But we, we got some bad news this week about Allison and that um, her place was robbed, okay? They, uh, they got her computer. They got her, um, uh, uh, her phone. They got a bunch of pretty much everything she had. Now, they've retrieved her bike, which is a good thing. A good thing, but she's still in bad shape. So what we're going to do is, especially for those of you who know Allison, um, we're going to try to get her about two thousand uh, to maybe replace some of those things. So we're going to send the baskets around just one more time. And this is something that you know we don't do very often at the vineyard. If you're new, I, mean, I would like to do it more personally. But we're going to take a second offering. But this is for Allison because she's family. So uh, if you're part of our church family, if you could help out, that would be great. Um, and that's pretty much it. So. Uh, John Lieb, our pastor, uh, I'd like to invite you up, everybody. John Lieb, our pastor for many years here at the Vineyard. Come on up, John. Doing it down here. Oh, you're going to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 thank you. Thanks. Hey, uh, we don't, as Jay said, we don't take up uh, multiple offerings. Although when there's this many people here, we probably should. Just, let's take another one, a third one, just because it felt so good, didn't it? <laughs> and, uh, Rick, Rick always has this saying, there's three champions out there who will give $1,000. <laughs> so, thank you, Mary. I like that last over there. Um, hey, a plug for next week. We're starting a new series next week called Who Do You Think You Are? And it's about our identity. Now, you may already know this, but your identity shapes your whole life, and it, and it even shapes your destiny. And one of the things that people are most confused about today is who they are. I think, you know, many of us, you understand, you've wrestled with that on a very existential level. Like, who am I? What am I? Uh, there's all kinds of Ways that, that the world we live in tries to tell us who we are. We try to figure out who we are. Uh, family's trying to tell us who we are. Uh, everybody wants a piece of us. Well, we're going to look at this whole idea of identity for the next month, uh, starting next Sunday. And I want to encourage you to come. I think it will be uh, enlightening and eye-opening for you. Now, uh, usually on Easter, churches are full. And uh, a lot of times, I think, we participate in activities that we're not totally gripped by or that we, totally, we don't totally get activities. Uh, sometimes they, you know, we know that they're somewhat valuable and important, and other times we don't really get it. Easter is one of those activities. I've been a pastor a long time. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I came to Christ my freshman year in college, and I wasn't really raised in church. My parents were um, holiday churchgoers. So if it was Christmas or Easter, we were there. And every once in a while, we'd be there for some other time. I think, I think uh, when the family started feeling guilty, we just figured we'd go to church and feel a little better. And, but I didn't get it. I remember sitting in church when I was a kid. And in, in an Episcopal church, uh, it's, you know, it, it's a different tradition. And it, it kind of feels different without going into all the details if you visit a, a little more of a liturgical-type church. But I didn't get why everybody goes so excited about Easter. What is the big deal? Okay, this guy named Jesus rose from the dead. 
Okay, I'm not even sure I believe that. But uh, if he did, so what? And I think a, a lot of people have that question. I know we're supposed to be excited if, if we're followers of Jesus. And if, and if you're not or you're just sort of thinking about what Jesus could mean to your life, you're wondering, what does a resurrection mean? I want to take you to a story in the New Testament. It's, it's at the end of one of the, the Gospels. It's in the Gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible with you, if you could open your uh, Bible, and they look like this. Actually, if you don't have a Bible, underneath the chair seat in front of you, they look like this. Luke chapter 24, which would be page uh, 735. You know, in, in, in a world like ours that's just, in America especially, you know, we're torn up with political division, uh, racial unrest, uh, you know, there's economic uncertainty, uh, there's, there's, there's fear of terrorism. I mean, there's just so many things that, that beset us that you think, well, what on earth would the resurrection have to say to anything that big or even to the, the, the things I wrestle with in my life? Does it have anything to say to those things? I, I've experienced, and many people ex- have experienced, actually, the resurrection is the game changer for all of those things. Now that may, you know, that may, I'm raising the bar pretty high here, but that's the title of this talk today is The Resurrection of Jesus is the Day Everything Changed Forever. And I want to show you the story of two people, and they're just an example of how, when they encountered the resurrection, how it radically changed their life. And I'm ex- I want to explain why, and then I want to obviously offer to you uh, an invitation for you to experience the same thing that they experienced in their life. So let's, let's read, in, starting in Luke 24, verse 13. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stopped, and their faces were downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and don't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, Before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said and all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. 
But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, that's the, the, the eleven apostles, and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two of them told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now, let's go back and, and just unpack this. This is their story, and it's a true story. Uh, this Luke is, uh, as, as a lot of scholars have, have recognized, Luke was a physician in the first century, and, and he was considered, he's considered by most scholars, a, a world-class historian. And at the beginning of the book of Luke, Luke said, listen, uh, he's writing to this man named Theophilus, and he says, I'm going to, I've researched the whole story about the gospel, and I'm going to tell this story to you so you understand it. And then he collected accounts from everybody he could find around Israel and the apostles and people who had seen it. They were firsthand eyewitness, eyewitnesses. And scholars look back now and look at other accounts of what life was like in that time, and they find that Luke's account of the, of the backdrop of all these gospel stories was just perfectly aligned with the way the world was back then. Now, these two people, if, if, if you see the story, it, it starts, they're, they're in Jerusalem and they're walking home. And as they walk home, they meet Jesus. And so it says they're on this journey. And then they get home. And at the end of this encounter, they rush back to Jerusalem. And it's a picture, this, this story is a picture of our lives in the sense that every one of us is, is on a journey and it's a, it's a metaphor that the Bible uses over and over and over, that this journey we go through life seems haphazard, seems, you know, uh, out of control and, and aimless, but Scripture says that God, that the people who wrote the Bible began to experience that God was actually at work in their lives in ways that made the world understandable. It wasn't just out of control. It wasn't just random. God was involved in their lives. But like this, this couple here, these t- probably two men, they didn't recognize at first that God was at work in their lives. And he was there with them, just like a lot of us don't. And when we come into this story, they're heartbroken. And they're walking along from Jerusalem. It's about seven miles away. And we're not sure where this town, this particular town of Emmaus is. But as they're going there, they're discussing, and the Greek word here means they were, really it was an energetic discussion, like they were debating and almost arguing. And so when Jesus comes along with them, he says, what's going on? And we, we get a sense right there, it says that they stopped and they were brokenhearted. They were, they were just crushed because of what had happened in Jerusalem. And they said that, that Jesus, this prophet, 
who was powerful in word and deed. He'd done miracles. He inspired. He challenged injustice. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He did everything that, that, that could inspire hope and purpose in people's lives. And we thought he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And that word redeem there, it's a key word that's, that's, that's really central to this. And just like we talked about last week about how the Passover was linked uh, to Jesus' triumphant entry. At the heart of this story is the, is the Passover again, because the word redeem was a, a word used in the marketplace where they were, they were all familiar with it. There was a, a place where people sold slaves. And when a slave was redeemed from slavery, you had to pay a price for them. So to be redeemed meant to be freed from slavery, but it meant at a great price. And so what they said was, we thought Jesus was the one that was going to set us free, just like Moses set our people free from slavery in Egypt. But it didn't work out because our leaders, they betrayed him. And they turned him over to the Romans, and they colluded with them, and they crucified him. And crucifixion is... is, is Waterboarding is child's play. You know, that's a word that, that strikes. If you've ever seen waterboarding, it's a horrible thing. Crucifixion is, is a, a form of public execution that is worse than anything you can imagine. It's where, where criminals, only the worst criminals were crucified. They were stripped naked and they were hung on a cross. And they were usually beaten beforehand. It, was, it happened in public. They usually would put them by along a road, a main road, because the goal was to say, you don't want to cross the Roman government because this is what happens to you with rebellion and insurrection and murder, the most uh, heinous kind of crimes from their point of view. And Jesus was crucified that way. And their hearts were broken. They said, you can't be a Messiah, which meant the anointed one from God, God's deliverer. You can't be a Messiah and be crucified. That's a, it's a contradiction in terms. It's impossible. Pain doesn't bring forth any good. Death doesn't bring forth anything good. And we can't conceive of how that brought about anything good. And so their hearts were broken. And, you know, death and loss just surround us, don't we? As we go on this journey of life, we hit death in all its different forms. Not just physical death, but losses, heartbreaks, right? Things do not work out the way we want them to. And we feel like, what hope do we have when, what's the next thing that's coming? You know, is there going to be some kind of a terrorist incident now in in the United States the way there is in Europe? Or or, are my kids going to go off the rails Am I going to lose my job? Uh, am I going to have a health crisis and, and lose everything and, and be ill uh, and incapacitated? I mean, our, our minds and our lives are full of these things. And a lot of us, we start life on this journey, and we think it's going to work out well. And then thing after thing happens, and it starts robbing us of hope. Well, this is where they were, okay? Now, here's the, here's the thing where Easter starts coming home to us. When, when you're disappointed enough, disappointment and hurt and pain starts first leading to cynicism. 
And you guys know what cynicism is, right? It's this kind of gnarly, kind of a edge that people get. Uh, Bill Maher is a cynic. Uh, a lot of comedians are cynics. A lot of people are cynical. And Bill Kyes, in his book, Seeing Through Cynicism, says three things about cynicism. He says cynicism, number one, is a way to deal with vulnerability, to deal with pain. It's a kind of callus that we form over our hearts that insulates us and seeks to take the the edge off of life. Because cynicism kind of distances you from it. Secondly, cynicism is an excuse for moral apathy. You'll see cynical people. They're not very engaged in life. They just think, ah, life sucks, and it shouldn't be this way, and uh, so what? I've kind of given up. I've thrown in the towel. And what they do when you're cynical is you just, you look at moral injustice and problems and things, and you just go, doesn't matter. Nothing I could do would change it, but it's an, it begins to become a, an excuse for a moral apathy. And then last of all, cynicism, uh, Dick Kay says, is that it is a way to gain power. It's a way to gain status. Because a cynical person is this person who kind of looks down at everybody else and says, you guys just don't get it, do you? Nothing makes sense. Nothing's worth it. And we look, we unfortunately, we look up to those people like they're sophisticated. When the truth is that's sad when cynicism grips you. Because a cynical person becomes detached from life. They stop risking. They stop being vulnerable. They stop being connected. Because cynicism is what distrust morphs into. And these these two people, people, within a couple of days of their hopes being dashed, they're already walking along the road and they're arguing with each other. And there's this energy in their lives. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever see a little of that creeping into your life? Because when you have pain, which brings disappointment, disappointment brings distrust, distrust will begin to breed cynicism. It's just this natural thing that happens. You could see it in their lives already. And they were confused, though, because in the middle of this just crash and burn situation of Jesus being crucified, three on the third day, it says, some women went to the tomb with spices to embalm his body because Jesus died in the beginning of the Sabbath. And so they didn't have time to bury him properly. So they just put him in a borrowed grave. They sealed it up. The Romans and the Jews, Jewish leaders, put soldiers around it to guard the grave because he kept, Jesus kept saying, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And they said, we don't want that to happen. We don't want, you know, this thing to keep going. We've killed him now. We want to keep him in the grave. Well, the women went to this tomb and it says they found the tomb empty. The stone was rolled back. The grave was empty. And there were angels there who said, he's not dead. He's alive. And they went back, the women went back and told our friends, and our friends went and they corroborated the women's story. Now, we don't get this in our culture because we've made tremendous progress in terms of 
equal rights. But in that culture, I mean, it's, it's, there's so much about this account that if it wasn't true, they wouldn't have written this. If you're trying to convince people of something that was true back in that time, it was almost universally believed that you couldn't trust women. That women were unreliable and emotional, and they, they weren't allowed to even offer testimony in a court. And every gospel says the first people that Jesus appeared to, the first people who saw the tomb empty, the first people who went out and told everybody were women. Now, in the first century, that wouldn't be the best way to be taken credibly for a story to be believed was to have women tell first. Everyone would have just gone, it's an old wives' tale. Another, it's another thing that lends to the credibility of this is these, these, these people didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. Everybody greeted it with skepticism. And so when, when these two disciples heard the story, they were confused. They were going, ah, we don't get it. And it says that they were kept from recognizing Jesus. And you wonder, what, what was it that could have kept them from recognizing who Jesus was? They just thought he was another Jew walking down the road, going the same direction they were. And, you know, they were wrapped up in their conversation. He joins them. He's curious. They start engaging in this talk and dialogue. Jesus, Jesus, the one they're talking about, is right there with them, but they can't see him. Why couldn't they see him? Well, a lot of... I think reasons have been put forward. I think the main reason was they couldn't get past this idea that any, anything good could come from crucifixion and a crucified Messiah. No good, no gain could ever come from pain. In their minds, they just could not reconcile those two things. Pain is something to be avoided. It's always bad. Never good. We are winners. We're not losers. Every culture wrestles with that. And there was Jesus right there with them, but they couldn't see him because they were clinging to this idea that death couldn't bring anything good from it. Pain couldn't offer anything. And certainly God would not be involved in that kind of a scene that kind of a scandal where anybody, they knew that this is another blow on the idea of a crucified Messiah was. The Old Testament said if someone hangs on a tree, they're cursed by God. It's a sign that they're cursed by God. And there's no way that the Messiah who represents God could ever be considered cursed by God. Nobody wants to identify, even back 2,000 years ago, with a loser, right? I just saw an article yesterday about how hard it is for all these presidential candidates who stepped out of the race because they, they couldn't persuade enough people to support them. And they're talking about uh, Governor Walker in Wisconsin was going back and he was handing out something at a bake sale, Right? So you go from uh, having CNN cover you with 
you know, millions of people watching you, everyone's talking about you, to you're in a room with 30 people handing out a reward for a bake sale, right? Uh, it's very humbling. These guys, these, these people have big egos. And no one, you know, the, the big money people who are supporting them, they want to be associated with people that might gain power, Right? You know what happened when Jesus was crucified? Everybody left him. Just like nobody wants to hang around with Scott Walker anymore. Right? Except it's a little more serious, I have to admit. Getting crucified is a little worse than stepping out of the presidential race. But the same reaction, the same reaction. Jesus was a loser. He was a loser. God wasn't into losers. God's into winners. We're winners. Remember what Ricky Bobby said? If you're not first, you're last. (laughs) It's even in the movies. I disavow most of what's in that movie, but the line was funny. I, I have to admit it. So... They couldn't see God was there with them in the mess because they refused to to let go of this idea that winning is the only way that we advance in life. So the next thing that happens is Jesus, in verse 25, he says, uh, before he says what things they explain, their part of the story, then he goes, you guys don't get it, do you? You're foolish. And you're slow to believe. You know, and he, he, he sort of takes a rhetor- he asks a rhetorical question. Didn't the Christ have to suffer and then enter his glory? Then become the one who alone could deliver everyone? Now, he, he posed the question that way because they already knew that. Jesus had said it to his disciples over and over and over and over and over, but they couldn't get it through their heads. Just like it's hard for you to get it through your heads that you need someone to go to the cross for you. That you're so messed up that the only way you can be set free is for someone to endure that kind of a horrible death in your place. We all have this kind of thing. Nah, that's for, the cross is for the really messed up people. I'm just glad that there's a Jesus around for them. That's the way a lot of us think. That's, I think, what they wrestle with. Because they thought this redemption thing was about political freedom and casting off the, the chains of Rome. If we can just get the right person in the White House, things will be better. That's what they thought. That's been the lie that people have believed, you know, as long as it goes. Like, the right person in in some chair making decisions somewhere is going to straighten everything out. My mom always used to have, she had this uh, saying, and I didn't ever understand it for a long, long time. But they struggled financially a lot of my life, and they kind of had some success later. But my mom used to say, We'd sit down in our, in our car, going somewhere to the grocery store, and she'd say, son, one day our ship's going to come in. And I used to go, what on earth does that mean? Just a little kid, you know? And I remember asking my grandmother one day, Grandma, 
my mom always says someday our ship's going to come in. And she kind of explained the idiom to me. And I went, oh, well, when's that going to happen? I thought at that point, you know, when you're like six years old, you, you think in very concrete terms. I thought there was a real ship coming into Galveston Bay <laughs> with something for us. And she just said, it just means some, eventually, John, some good things are going to happen. Because my parents experienced a bunch of losses when I was young. And we all think that when that ship comes in, oh, yeah. And Jesus was the ship that was going to come in. But the ship, you know, hit a reef, burned, and then was bombed. <laughs> and there's nothing coming in from it. You know, it's all just polluting the beaches now. That's what they thought. There wasn't anything good. These guys were heartbroken. So Jesus says, no, you were wrong. In fact, you're, you're so wrong, you're foolish. Now, when people, here's what I've learned. <laughs> when people are really suffering, you don't say, you fool. <laughs> you know, you empathize with them. You, you, you take a quieter, gentle tone of voice most of the time. But when your problem is you're self-deceived, when your problem is your problem is you, empathy helps But the truth is what really sets a person free. And so Jesus, it says he takes them through the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to take you through the whole Old Testament like they did. But Jesus said, from Moses to the prophets, which meant from the beginning of the Old Testament in Genesis all the way to Malachi, all the prophets over and over, hundreds of times, described what the Messiah was going to do. I'm going to read one passage to you that was written 700 years before the story we're reading. And it describes a Messiah, and it describes him being crucified. And it describes this 400 years before crucifixion was ever invented. And so Jesus was saying to them, listen, this is true. This stuff is, this has been in the word all this time. I, God has been with you all this time, and you, but you're ignoring it because you can't get around the idea that Messiah had to die, had to suffer. He had to suffer in your place for you to be free. So let me read this passage to you. It's Isaiah 53, uh, starting in verse uh, 6, or verse 4. It says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace was upon him. By his wounds, we're healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearer, her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For we, he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Now, a lot of the rabbis looked at this and said, this seems a lot like the Passover lamb. Which you know, we talked about last week and how when Jesus came into the city, how he was coming in. On the day that the families took the Passover lamb and brought it into their house. And it says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And 
Again, Jesus' grave was a borrowed grave from a very rich man in Jerusalem. And though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. He's talking about the resurrection there. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. In other words, his death is not a defeat, it's a victory. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. So Jesus hung between two thieves like a criminal. Even though Pilate who tried him, the judge at his trial, admitted there's no, we can't find any guilt. You're being killed for who you say you are. And that you're a threat to the political system. You're a threat to people who want you out of the way. And so they put over Jesus' head, there was a Greek uh, term that they used to describe the charges for a person who was crucified. And over, over their cross, above their head, there was a sign that said what crime they were being crucified for. Jesus didn't have any, it didn't say murder, insurrection. It said the king of the Jews. And it said it in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Greek. So everyone would know, this guy is being crucified for who he is, not anything he's done. And that's what Isaiah said. He's going to bore the sin of many and make intercession for the transgressors for us. Okay? He's dying in our place. He's paying the price for all the mess that we've made. Because we're our own worst enemies. Because what Jesus' death does is it, it, the, the three things that we all struggle with are our sins, our self-indulgence and selfishness, the sins of other people against us, injustice, you know, per, interpersonal uh, kinds of stuff that we do to one another. And then the third thing is our sinful reaction to that. Because not only do something wrong, but when people wrong us, we react in really unhelpful, destructive ways. And those three things just become like a chain that is tied to each of our limbs that just enslaves us. And Jesus went into that darkness, suffered and died. He was unjustly killed. And think about this. He never sinned. We did. He was sinned against, but he was innocent. He didn't react sinfully. On the cross, he said, forgive them. Everything we aren't, he was. Everything we didn't do, he did. And he was doing it, though we didn't deserve it, he was doing it in our place. And so... He invites them at this point in the story here. They come to this fork in the road, and this is where we're at, just to kind of 
bring it to a close. It says that when he's explained this to them, it was just like this. It was just this pause, like, oh, my gosh. Wow. We, clearly, the disciples, they got it at this point. Cleopas and his partner there just go, wow. We have been foolish and slow to believe the truth that we've been taught our whole lives and that Jesus himself taught us. How could we miss that? We've been stuck in stupid for a long time. And it's embarrassing to admit when you're wrong, right? Isn't it? At that point, Jesus, they're they're walking along and they're coming up to their village and the turn to their village and Jesus acts like he's going to keep going down the road. And they go, whoa, whoa. It's getting dark. Uh, Come and stay with us. You see what they did there? They said, we like what you're saying. We're going to embrace that. Come and stay with us. In their culture, to invite someone into your home was something you did to establish a relationship or deepen a relationship. That's why Jewish uh, uh, leaders got so ticked off at Jesus because he would go into the home of, of drunkards and prostitutes and troublemakers and ne'er-do-wells, and they said, what are you doing going in there? You know, you're, 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 you're giving them tacit approval for their lives, and he didn't see it that way. He said, no, it's the goodness of God that leads people to repent. Besides, you need to repent as much as they do, he said to the Jewish leaders. But you just don't, you won't admit it, they will. So the doctor only goes to the people who are sick. The healthy don't need a doctor. He's really saying, you're not healthy, but you're too proud to admit it. But these guys are. And he would hang out with them. And so they invited Jesus in. And it says at the, at the meal, it was weird. He just sort of took the household lead. He takes the bread He holds it up and he breaks it, just like they did in the Passover. They would take the bread and they would break it. The head of the household would break it. And it says, as soon as he broke the bread, their eyes were open because they'd seen this before, right? They'd seen this at the Passover where Jesus did it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And they go, where is he? Where is that masked Savior, you know? Poof, he's gone. And they, here's what happened. They get filled. This is, this is the, the reason why the resurrection changes everything is the resurrection meets us in our pain like them. It offers us the understanding we need to figure out life and what answers there are in life in the cross And then it delivers real joy. Now, it says here at this moment, they invited Jesus in. They see he's Jesus. They immediately realize, oh, my gosh, he was raised from the dead. Evil does not have the last word. My sins, the sins of others against me, and my sinful reactions are not going to rule over me anymore because Jesus defeated them. And he will be with me. Because the two things about our pain that we all struggle with is this. I, no one can handle it if you have to handle it alone. And no one can handle pain if it doesn't end sometime. 
And what they saw there was because Jesus was raised, he would be with them. And they could face pain with courage and strength and resources that they never would have imagined they could have because here they were wrestling with this pain and wrestling with the, this issue and the struggle and the disappointment and everything they felt, which, they, which probably reminded them of many other disappointments and losses and pain. And Jesus is there. And at the end of it, when they realize that Jesus is with them, they are overwhelmed that the loss is not going to have the final word. Sin's not going to have the final word. Injustice is not going to have the final word. Pain, death, whatever. That the Messiah really has come. He's really alive. And he's with anybody who wants to invite him in the home. It's a real simple message. But it so profoundly affected them. Remember when they went, they, they, were, they were going in their house, they said, it's, it's almost dark. Come on in. Probably that took a little while, preparations. It's probably dark. They don't even hesitate They make the seven-mile walk back to Jerusalem in the dark fearlessly. This is what the resurrection does. You can live in the dark without fear. Because Jesus is not dead. He's alive. But his death redeemed you. And he will be with you in the midst of every freaking mess that you encounter and he won't leave you alone. And you don't have to live in denial about pain and loss and disappointment. You don't. You can face them with courage. And, and God sometimes sends pain into our lives because he wants to strengthen us. Steel is not reach its fullest Tensile strength without being tempered, without heat being applied to it. Our character is transformed when we encounter suffering and pain. Jesus has blazed that path. And here's the thing. Nobody gets the joy of the resurrection unless you're willing to embrace a crucified Messiah in a a life that involves pain. If you want a life that's the, you know, the, the Caribbean island cruise life without any difficulties, you don't need a crucified Messiah. You're just, you're just going to anesthetize yourself with all the toys that our world offers, but your life is going to be empty. Maybe you know, maybe some of you are here and you go, that's where I am. I've been chasing some of those things. You don't get, you won't get that Jesus' resurrection will change everything until you're willing to embrace him as the crucified Messiah for you. And that means you're gonna, there's all kinds of stigma with that today, right? I mean, you, you guys know, I talk to people in my neighborhood and uh, people I work out with the gym. Uh, people, you know, just encounter. And I, I, when I say I'm a follower of Jesus, they go, ooh. <laughs> you're a carrier, <laughs> You must be, uh, you know, a racist, homophobic, bigoted, you know, regressive uh, Neanderthal. And I go, well, only, only about a tenth of that. <laughs> but I'm working on it. There's a stigma of, of following Jesus. Now, I don't mean Christians. I post stuff on my Facebook all the time. 
I'm going to start a Facebook page, Dumb Things Christians Say. You know, I, 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 that could just be my job. I could just quit and I spend all day just, just putting things on there of what people like us say, unfortunately. But that's why we need a crucified Messiah, because we do that, right? And it's hard to come to terms with that and say, that's me. But there's an upside. You can change, just like these these men did. Their lives were changed when they invited Jesus in and they experienced the power of his resurrection in their life, when they saw who he was. So we're going we're gonna to just close. And lately we've been taking communion at the end of services. And it's a ritual to some people. It's like, eh, I don't get it. Uh, but this is a picture that, that the church has, that we alone have. That Jesus said, the bread is his body, the wine is his blood. This is a picture of a covenant where God's standing on one side and he's saying, I'm going to make this agreement with you. I'm going to commit everything I have to you. And I want you to give me everything you have. And trust me, we get the better end of the deal. But the commitment is based on, in in those New Testament times, they would seal a commitment by killing an animal. And they would cut it in half and they would separate the parts. And the two parties would say, I'm committing this to you, A, B, C, D. The other person would say, I'm committing that to you, A, B, C, D. Then they would walk through the parts of the animal saying, if I don't keep my part of the bargain, may I suffer the same fate as this animal. And in the Old Testament, the Jews were delivered by a lamb being slain. Jesus said, I am delivering you by my death. And as Christians, here's what, here's what I can offer you that nobody else in the world can offer you, no matter what. It may sound narrow. I can offer you the life of Jesus for your life. You give him your life, he gives you his life. He lives inside you. He's with you through all the ups and downs, through all the messes, through all your failures, through you living out the cycles that your family have lived out for generations that have messed things up. Jesus says, if you invite me in the house and and you, this is one of the ways you can do it, is to say, I recognize this scene here. This is a covenant moment where the crucified Messiah who rose He rose so we would know that this is what this is about. He rose from the dead so he wouldn't just be a tragic figure, another person that was crushed by the system, right? He was raised so we could know for sure all this stuff is real. And now he's seated at the Father's right hand and he's delivering on all of his promises to us. But there's weakness and there's pain in accepting this way of life. There's disappointment. There's sacrifice. But there's love and there's peace and there's forgiveness. And there's his presence above everything else. 
His presence is the gift. And so we're going to invite you to come up today. And if, if uh, Adam if Adam, and the team could come back up. We're going to have a couple at each aisle here. And uh, you can take communion or not. But I want to ask you today to take communion. There, there's, there's three groups of people in here. I want, you, I want you to respond to this. One is... There's some of you that have just never opened the door of your life, the door of your home, the door of your person to Jesus, this crucified Messiah. You know, maybe you heard the gospel of Jesus the winner, but Jesus was a, was a tragic figure who, who died for you. And if you want to invite him into your life, I want you to take these elements today as an, as an act of faith that what he did for you you will experience that in your life in a new way. There's some of you who have given up on this crucified Messiah. You've just kind of gotten numb. You're already, you've been followers of Jesus. You've said yes to him at some point. But you just lost your way. You just lost your way. You've been, maybe you've been seduced by the American dream that, that we don't have to face any pain or difficulty and that we should avoid it at all costs. And you've become self-indulgent again. And you've become materialistic. And you just become broken in a hundred ways because you're not following Jesus anymore. Or you're just a fan of Jesus. You're not really a follower. You're just a fan of him. He's cool. But you go, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to embrace the crucified Messiah. I want you to come. And the rest of you, just as a reminder, Jesus said, every time you're a believer and you take these elements, we proclaim his presence until he comes, and his presence is going to meet us here. His love is going to meet us here in a fresh way. And we're going to sing a song as we do this and close. And this is the closing of the service. You are all blessed to go and enjoy Easter with your family and friends and whatever you have planned today. But these elements are promising you something. If you open the door of your home, joy will come in. It will invade your life. You will not fear the dark the way you did. You will not be alone. Evil and darkness and loss and even the the struggles of your own heart are not the last word. Jesus is. So I invite you to come and take these elements today and remember that and take that out with you and let the power of that start 